Hi, this is Mark and welcome to Nerdology. And my guests today are, in no particular order, Dr. Matt Barber. Woo! Sorry. <laughs> hey, Matt. Hello. Hi. And Hi. Mr. Ian Martin. Woo! Woo! Yay! Is this you the new have, thing now? You, you don't have, have to, to call me other. doctor throughout, by the way. Okay, well, just, thanks. Just, thanks the, for... just the once is fine. Well, you know, if you've earned it, then you might as well use it. Yeah. Oh, I use, I use it. I just <laughs> don't use it for any academic reason. Oh, Matt, it's been a long time since you've been on the show. Yeah. How long has it been? When, uh, well, you were on what, episode what seven, and that was, okay. I don't know, a lifetime ago. Obviously, the yeah. experience was so traumatic for you that it's taken you this long to recover from it. Uh, yes, that's very true. <laughs> or you haven't asked me to come back. Well, there is that. Plus, my my sphere of ex my spheres of expertise are fairly narrow, hmm. so there's not a great deal that I can talk about. Well, the pair of you, in one way or another, have been badgering me for what feels like years to do an episode about the West Wing. So that's what we're going to do on this particular episode. And you um, and you. You've thoroughly prepared, haven't you, Mark? Of course, of course. Um, now, it's been a while since I've watched this series right the way through. Quite could, we, could we drill down into that? Could we have an exact time time reading oh, on how God. long it's been? <sighs> don't don't pin me down again. Uh, you, you did watch one episode, didn't you? Like a week uh, ago. Yes, I've watched a couple, I've watched a few episodes just to okay, sort of get okay. back into the swing of it. Um, yeah. I bought the the DVD box set many years ago and uh consumed that uh before binge watching was really a thing um and i've talked to friends at work about you know they quite often are recommending things to watch on netflix or whatever and i'll say the west wing and because it's not on any of those streaming services they're all like oh that sounds really good but i can't find it anywhere i'm thinking well just buy the dvd um, I know it's, you know, it's not exactly cheap, but I'd say it's pretty good value. So the long and short of it is I haven't watched it for ages. I need a little bit of a refresher as to, you know, why is it worth watching? Why should I recommend investing the time to watch seven seasons of a US political drama to friends who may not necessarily be thinking that's their cup of tea? And hopefully... By the time we get to the end of this episode, you guys will have done such a fantastic job that everyone will be just rushing out to get the DVD box set. Okay. No pressure. No, no, none at all. Um, so, Matt, we'll start with you. Yes. What, What is it that really appeals to you about this particular show? So, so, my, relationship, so my relationship with the West Wing is long and complicated. Um I watched it when it first came out. So I was I watched bits of the first season when it was on whatever channel, Channel 4 or something mm -hmm. like that, and didn't really know what I was watching. I, it was the kind of thing where I tuned in halfway through an episode. Um, but I was really grabbed by it. And this was before, this was back in 1998. Um, so I was in the middle of my first degree at university. Okay. And it got it got under the skin under my skin, and then I bought the first DVD box set, um, and then I started buying them as they came out. And then, in two thousand and one, September two thousand and one, um, 
I started a PhD that was the, the original plan wasn't this, but it turned out to be about the American presidency depicted as depicted in screen. So films and television. And at that stage, the West Wing was into just about to start its third season. Okay. So I thought, well, we've got two seasons here of good presidential depiction. This is ripe for for you know, writing about, and I really like it. And I'd watched it you know, twice, twice in a row back then. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I started writing the PhD, and I didn't get around to writing about the West Wing until it had actually finished. So that's how long the PhD took. Right. Um, so by the time I got to write about the West Wing, I had the full seven seasons to watch. Okay. Um, which I managed to watch the full seven seasons in about 10 days um, in preparation. Wow, that's so going. Making notes. I had an Excel. I was full Doctor Who fan stuff out of necessity. <laughs> I had a spreadsheet with... What are you trying um, to say, Matt? With, I had a spreadsheet with viewing figures on it because I needed to prove when it was sort of waning in popularity. Uh, it had key events in the series. It had connections with the, with the real-world politics. Um mm. But even after writing about it, and normally when you write about it to that depth, you tear something apart and you break it completely. Never do a, a an essay or a book or a PhD or whatever on something you love because you tear it apart and it's almost impossible to get it back together again. That's why I didn't do Doctor Who for a PhD because I didn't want to break Doctor Who for myself. Um, so but, you decided to do a Doctor Who podcast instead, which... Yeah, that's... Yeah, so... <laughs> So the the strangers as it is now the strangers in space podcast yeah has dented Doctor <laughs> Doctor Who <laughs> it's inevitable really but, isn't it but, because but, you're but analysing keep, it so yeah, much yeah but I I keep I keep like optimistic about it mm-hmm. but the thing about the West Wing is it didn't dent it I wrote about it then I rewatched it a couple of years later and you start what I start watching it and I carry on through because I remember the 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 bits that I really like. And I know that just on the horizon, there's an episode I really like, or a, a period of the show I really like. Mm-hmm. Um, and the last time I watched it all the way through was with my partner, my current partner, mm-hmm. um, who, who hadn't seen it. And so I sat down with her and she got really gripped with it. And she, she cried throughout. It's, it's got a real sort of, Emotional and cried at at um, bits that you wouldn't expect people to cry. So Leo goes into a meeting, but there's stirring music behind it, and he's going to do something noble, and she's in pieces on the on the sofa. <laughs> and that kind of that kind of sets almost sets me off because obviously, obviously I'm emotionally like constipated. Um, so so I I'm I'm sort of inside. I'm I'm like really emotional. On the outside, I'm laughing about things, but. But it's that sort of series where someone going into a meeting mm. has an emotional resonance. Um, so yeah, so I, I rewatched it about a year ago, completely. Okay. Um, and I've seen a couple of episodes in preparation for this, but mm-hmm. I didn't feel like I needed I, I needed to sort of catch up too much because no. it's it's under my skin. At the moment. Yeah, it's in your DNA by the sound of it. <sighs> yes. Yeah, whether it's a good idea to watch it, but we'll get it. We'll get into that. But <laughs> go to Ian first. <laughs> okay. So, Ian, uh, what's your relationship with the show? 
Um, so I had a, and indeed still do have a best friend who watched it while it was originally being broadcast. Mm. And he kind of forced me to watch uh, Two Cathedrals, which is the end of episode two, as the first episode I'd ever watched. And it kind of didn't really mean very much. So I... I knew the show existed, but it wasn't really on my radar. Mm. And then it was a couple of years later, and um, it was a summer. It was a very hot summer. I want to say it was 2005, something like that. Yeah. And um, someone I worked with uh, who was doing his uh, degree on American uh, politics uh, was telling me that he basically learned everything he, would, he was writing about <laughs> from watching The West Wing. Um, Uh, To which I replied, well, you know, I've never seen this show. Um, And that doesn't sound like a remotely plausible activity for a notional adult to base their academic uh, research on. So he lent me the box set. And and what I found then, and it's still true now, is that the West Wing is very much like skiing for me. You, you can you can start off, you can lower yourself over the, the, the edge and sort of start at whatever speed you like and you can control it and you can watch an episode here and tomorrow night maybe watch another one and at the weekend. But by the time you're kind of halfway through, you gain this massive momentum and you do tend to blitz through seasons four, five, six and seven. They kind of come at you and it's a, just a big blur and it's a, a week of your life missing. Um and also, I guess I was about 25 when I first went through the West Wing. And at that time, I knew I knew everything there was possibly to know about Doctor Who. Um, I knew everything there possibly was to know about 90s pop music. But that was kind of it for me as a viable human being. Um, and it was watching the West Wing that kind of uh, made me think about things like um, the, the, the wider world and politics and um being you know kind of a, a hard-working inspiring visionary figure and while i very quickly gave up on that because that well, looked like very hard work oh i don't um, know <laughs> it did inspire me um so by the time I'd, I'd finished watching it i'd watched it um it addictively i was i was literally watching two episodes in the morning going to work coming home at lunchtime watching another episode and going back to work and then um, doing three or four in the evening, and I, I got through it all frantically quickly, mm. and it just blew me away. And I've watched it every, I suppose, four or five years since I first watched it. Um, it's just one of those uh, texts. I'm going to use that word, uh, like like Twin Peaks, that just uh, I need to keep uh, re-engaging with to kind of test how I've changed and where I've got to as a person mm. by coming back to this very familiar comforting um thing have you have you done twin peaks yet mark um i again i have the box set me and ian have uh, had this discussion and uh i i did watch it back in the day when it was on and uh it obviously left an impression on me because i invested in buying a box set but um and after our last discussion about twin peaks i think i made it through most of series one but then my mind gets distracted by other things, so I've just, been sort of just, jumping around a place. This is a, ta- a tangent, and I'm not mm. going to stick to it, but mm. watch series one. Yeah. Watch the film when when your kid isn't around, because <laughs> it's yeah. a horrible film. <laughs> and 
if you haven't seen it already, watch the return because you, you don't need the windmill stuff. The windmill when it gets bogged down, you don't need that stuff. You can mm. sort of skip that bit. Maybe watch the last episode. Oh man, we've got a schism in the Twin Peaks community. <laughs> I'm all about series two with with the obvious middle of series two hump the, as an the, exception. The but, non the, the non David Lynch stuff. The yeah, I think it's really charming. It's it's charming, but it's not David Lynch. It's not, but I don't think the show <laughs> lives or dies on David Lynch. I think Mark Frost is an equal. Um, you, say, you say that. I do say that. That's what was wrong with the return. There was no Mark Frost. You, Mark, no, Mark Frost co-wrote the return. Yeah, do you reckon? Because I watched all the extras and it was just <laughs> David Lynch driving around making stuff up as he went along. Let's let's not talk about Twin Peaks. I think anyway. what you've done is you've led us off down a very dangerous tangent. I li- I, what I liked when, when you said that your friends um, admitted <laughs> to, to learning all he knew about politics through... Through the West Wing, because that's yeah. exactly what that's exactly what I did. I yeah. embarked on this degree, which half of which was American politics, knowing nothing about American politics apart right. from what I picked up on the West Wing. And as similarly, my knowledge of British politics for quite a long time and probably still comes from Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister, and, so and the, the New Statesman, possibly. And oh, and not, no, not the New Statesman. I never oh. watched the New Statesman. Oh, no. I love the New Statesman. <laughs> But, but it's again, it's very, how... very similar to the West Wing in a number of ways. Yeah, uh, Rick, no, yeah. Rick Mail's yeah. uh, subtle and occasionally uh, <laughs> tear-inducing performance was uh, was something very noble. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, and... back to the West Wing for a for a while, <laughs> if we can. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the cast is pretty decent. Would you agree? Um, I think was this Rob Lowe's first real big sort of. Um, comeback after his slight fall from grace am i right in saying that <laughs> yeah yes i think so and it's his I mean, first we don't need real... to go into the details ian before you uh start but uh i, I, I don't know why you're looking at me especially because we're in an audio format and and well... uh, i don't even know if you are <laughs> i think it was it was rob Lowe's first television series yeah proper okay. television series and it's yeah. one of the first times that that film stars ended up getting it happens all the time now, but big mm. film stars and and Martin Sheen end say, up Martin on Sheen's television. A huge name, isn't he? You know, from his movie work to, to yeah, and he wasn't supposed to. It was supposed to be Rob Rob Lowe's show as well. He was supposed right. to be the central character, mm-hmm. and Martin Sheen was cast, and it was supposed to be Martin Sheen pops up now and again yeah. through through the series. Um, but that first episode, Martin Sheen's in the pilot episode, Martin Sheen's mm. presence was and performance was such that Aaron Sorkin immediately realised that that the whole show was Martin Sheen, and and that kind of that kind of put Rob Lowe into an ensemble rather than than as a as a sort of a lead character, which actually I think makes the show. I think that's that's the thing that. That's the key thing that ties the show together. Well, if you are going to be in an ensemble, you might as well be in a really good one. Yeah, really good one. I mean, the, the you know, I don't know. It's, uh, Alison Janney's won Oscars. I don't know if anybody else, but they all won Emmys. And I think Bradley Whitford is now is now on his way to to winning lots of awards. Or he's making a name for himself playing sort of 
playing sort of supporting roles in I some think of the Edge. Chris had got sort of um, stage awards and things like that, but I don't think she'd um, got any sort of movie stuff up until that point, as far as I'm aware. Anyway, could be wrong. But, uh, and Joshua Molina was doing some podcasting until recently, so he's really um, doing well as well. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, when I, I put the uh, the feelers out for some feedback, and uh, my good lady wife was saying that uh, I mean she obviously doesn't have time to do tweets and things like that because she's busy doing everything else. But she did say to mention about the uh, the West Wing podcast because that's I think it was you Ian that put her onto that, and uh, that's essential listening if you mm. do get into it. Yeah, absolutely was. I don't. I mean, I don't know about. Um, Matt specifically, but um, did you listen to the podcast? So I listened. Yes, I did. Um, and I listened to to it all the way through. But I was in a bit of a particular situation because I'd written 20 to 30,000 words on the West Wing. And then right. suddenly I'm I'm listening to a podcast with interviews with the people who created it. My yeah. my, my my tension in my head was this is really interesting, but I got it wrong. I got this bit wrong. I got that bit wrong. I was, you know, I missed this. I didn't include this. So really what the podcast did was, was it just undermined your confidence and yeah. proved to the world that you're basically a, a fraud. It demonstrated how, <laughs> how flawed and empty my thesis was. Um, at oh, the time. No. It, pa- it passed. So Good. You know, Good. I blagged it, but, well, um, but the podcast was sort of really interesting. And Joshua Molina is, is, and, Rishi Keshaway are really kind of, they've got a good chemistry between oh, them. So and wonderful. Joshua Molina is a very amusing um, voice uh, for podcasts. And also the one of the good things about the West Wing as well, as the podcast reveals, is the relationship, the personal relationship between the actors is so good, particularly Bradley Whitford and, mm. and Joshua Molina when he, <laughs> he comes on. That kind of uh horseplay and practical jokes um which which kind of you can kind of see on screen as well you can see that that these roles are the actors roles of their life basically they particularly well very quickly in season one you can see that that they've suddenly realized that they're in this great series whether it's successful or not they're in a really great series speaking this fantastic dialogue yeah really enjoying it um and conversely you can see when they when they start breaking up or when characters characters get uh, get arrested or characters die or actors die you can see that that that's trauma you can see that playing out on screen as well so it's yeah It's 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 an amazing cast they they were a family um <clears throat> from the sound of it, they still kind of are a very disparate family. Whenever the two or three of them get together, there's obviously still so much love there. And yeah, like you were saying, it it does kind of underpin the whole show. And and when when there is a leaving or a cast change or whatever, it it changes the whole rest of of the show. It's it, for my money. It's it's the I. Mm, it's them or the Sopranos for the for the most kind of organic and wonderful cast um, we've never, ever had. I've never watched the Sopranos. Have you not? No. Did you not? Did you not do a PhD on organised crime in the New Jersey area? I did a PhD, and my supervisor had written <clears throat> articles about the Sopranos, 
and I just never watched The Sopranos, and I still haven't. It's on the list. I'm watching films now. I can't. I don't have time to watch The Sopranos. Right. But I will. I will get to it. It's yeah. interesting. You you talked about that kind of family relationship between the cast members, and I think that's also if you look at Martin Sheen as a president. There's something about Bartlett, the character of the presidency. So this is this is set up in the first two seasons, I think, that that Bartlett is a father and he's a president, but he's also a god. So there's this kind of this kind of three roles that he inhabits. And Bartlett is father. It comes it comes across in the series when I think it's in uh, Shadow of Two Gunmen Part Two, when you have flashbacks to to um to Bartlett talking to to Josh, whose father has just died, and Bartlett kind of takes his father's role. So, so Bartlett becomes this this new father to the character. But it also happens off screen because Martin Sheen in the nineteen eighties, Martin Sheen was a kind of a father figure to the to the Brat Pack. So Emilio Estevez, Charlie Sheen, and Rob Lowe. Rob Lowe pretty much grew up in in uh, Martin Sheen's backyard. Uh, so I imagine Emilio Estevez was quite near Martin Sheen's backyard as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Martin, <laughs> Emilio Estevez and Charlie Sheen, both both of which grew he was like up a father very, to them, wasn't he? He was like <laughs> he was. a father to them. <laughs> yeah. But but Rob Lowe was Rob Lowe apparently was this kind of was this kind of constant presence as well. Right. So having those two actors in it, oh. you get that you get that kind of father figure in the series. I think that's something I never in. knew. Yeah, so it's kind of baked into the series, um, and then you, you talk get of the father uncle, figures and what have you. But um, yeah. the, the elephant we haven't addressed in the room yet is the the creator and genius behind it all is Aaron Sorkin. Mm-hmm. Um, are you a fan of all of his work, or is it just this particular one that really stands out for you? Or what are your views on him uh-huh. as a a creative? Do you want to go first, Ian? I, I I can do. I've tried and failed to get too worked up about anything else he's ever done. Mm-hmm. Um, the Steve Jobs film he wrote was my second favourite Steve Jobs film of the post-Steve <laughs> Jobs era. Um, I tried with News... Was it called Newsroom? I watched something like three or four yeah. episodes of it, but... Um, the writing was probably absolutely as bang on as Aaron Sorkin's work ever has been, but it didn't have that alchemy of a cast that you you want to spend every moment of your life with. Mm. So, yeah. And Matt? I'm, I'm, I'm similar, so I haven't liked everything. I liked Molly's Game. That was a, a recent film that he he directed as well. Yeah. Um, obviously... So um, in 1990, <clears throat> uh, the film The American President, um, which had Michael Douglas playing um, playing the American president, and it's the story of he's a widowed president and he falls for this lobbyist, and they have this awkward relationship. Um, it's got um, Martin Sheen plays the the chief of staff, so um, he plays the uh, the Leo McGarry uh, character, and that's mm-hmm. written by Aaron Sorkin. So that's that's another that's another thing that I got heavily into. If you watch this film, it's a sort of a it's like it is absolutely a prototype for for the West yeah. Wing. Um, but it but with a beginning beginning, middle, and end. Um, I also tried watching. I did watch Studio Sixty on the Sunset Strip, yeah. which is the series that 
Sorkin did after the West Wing. Mm-hmm. And I did, I did like it, but I think it was flawed. Um, and it was flawed for, for some of the reasons I think that Sorkin is flawed on the West Wing. Um, so, so I think, so for me, Sorkin is a genius. I think he's, he's inventive and he's capable of improvising as a writer. And I think, I always think of Stephen Moffat as being, um, not to get controversial, but Stephen Moffat is a similar sort of writer mm-hmm. in that I, don't, I never think that Stephen Moffat has a plan or a solid plan. I don't think Stephen Moffat's the sort of writer that has post-it notes on his wall with every plot beat. I think he riffs off plot beats and has the intelligence to make mm-hmm. the, the plot twists look like they've been planned, look like they've been meticulously organised all the way. It's organic. Um, I think it's organic. This is where JR and I depart in our, our views of how Doctor Who is written. Um, okay. I, I think most of it is just flying by the seat of their pants and taking advantage of, of quirks and twists. And I think Aaron Sorkin absolutely does this. So he, in one episode, he introduces um, the idea of uh, Bartlett having an illness mm, as, yeah. as being, as being um, and initially it was just going to be one episode, Bartlett has an illness that he's concealed. And he, he, chooses MS because it fits exactly what he wants it to be. He doesn't want it to be like a, an on-the-surface illness. He wants it to be something that can come and then go away again. Yeah. Um, and he turns that that revelation that wasn't supposed to be a massive thing into Bartlett's scandal. So Bartlett's Monica Lewinsky is MS. And that's, and that's complete in, invention. That's that sort of... That's kind of flying by the seat of your plants, pants plotting, mm-hmm. and his 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 West Wing story arcs hold together for the most part, despite the fact I don't think he's he he plans them. He writes them, well, he wrote them pretty much on cocaine. That's 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 the open <laughs> myth, isn't it? Yeah, that's, I think no, I think it's genuine. I think he was he was did he was suffering from substance abuse whilst he was writing the West Wing. I think you would have had to have been to churn yeah. out 24, 50-odd uh, page scripts every, it's, you know, over 24 weeks. It's, it's extraordinary. A, it's unprecedented and it's unparalleled, isn't it? You you don't yeah. get any other shows where you've got one guy sitting there writing every single word and having this, this manic, obsessive control over the whole thing. Well, and I mean that in a good way. Internet, uh he wrote or co-wrote 85 out of the first 88 episodes. That's insane. That is really, insane. Yeah. Yeah. And he wrote them and he, quite often he was delivering them as they were, as they were rehearsing. <laughs> so it's not, it, it really was. But it always it really feels was. very naturalistic when you see his stuff. Well, in the West Wing anyway, I've not really seen that much. Did he, am I misremembering? Did he do the screenplay for the social network? Uh, yes. Was that him? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I he did a few, a few good men, a few good men as well. Mm. So he comes from a, he comes from a theatrical background. Yeah. Um, so so as I was saying, I I really love Sorkin, but there are some flaws, um, and and one flaw is Gilbert and Sullivan. This is my <laughs> this is my big thing. Okay, you're going to have to so, elaborate there, Matt. So <laughs> I'll start with stu- in Studio Sixty. It's a, a Studio Sixty is about. Um, a Saturday Night Live style um, kind of comedy series in America. 
Um, and it's about what happens behind the scenes of this comedy series. Um, and it's about, so um, Bradley Whitford and um, what's his name from Friends? Um, help me, Chandler. Matthew Matt Perry. Matt Perry. Um, they, they play old writers on this series who are brought back to jazz it up and to bring it back to life because it's become old and stale. And the, the opening episode, their tactic for doing this in the opening episode is to, to do a Gilbert and Sullivan operetta parody. <laughs> and I hate Gilbert and Sullivan. <laughs> there's something about, there's something about, I don't think it's, I, th- I think there's, there is a class system in America, as I understand it. And there's an Ivy League snobbery yeah. in America. And for some reason, Gilbert and Sullivan is seen as the pinnacle of culture in, in Ivy League, or it was back then, it's culture. Yeah. And this sort of threads through the West Wing. So every so often you get Gilbert and Sullivan appearing as the West Wing as if it's this high cultural, like, oh, these, these characters are really smart because they, they're able to, they were in the Gilbert and Sullivan Society and they're able to quote the Pirates of Penzance from beginning to end. Hey, look, um, I don't think they could top the moment when Big Bird appeared in the show. I mean, that's... I, see, I don't mind that. I don't that's mind a cultural when... touchstone. I don't mind when Toby starts uh, banging on about public television and talks about growing up with Julia Child because it's not, it's, it's, it's not Gilbert and Sullivan. So Gilbert and Sullivan is my one problem. My other problem is the women in the West Wing and the way the women are treated under Aaron Sorkin. Right. They, there are strong female roles, but there are quite often moments where, the, the strength of the women are commented on by the men in terms of in terms of their appearance connected with their power and connected with their intelligence. I think there's in the first series there's an episode called The Crackpots and, and these women. And these women, which is which is supposed to be a celebration of these the female characters right. in in the West Wing. Supposed but it ends where it ends with the president and Leo stood in the corner of a room watching these women saying how much they really love these women. Look at these women, they say. They're so they're really great, these women. And it's just two two basically baby boomers talking slightly creepily about women. <laughs> and th- and this happens throughout throughout talking. I'm not sure his I'm not sure his the way they they treat women in the series and Ainsley Hayes. So partway through the series, a Republican, a Republican pundit is brought into the white house to, to be a sort of a, a, a lawyer, to be a lawyer in the white house. Yeah. Um, and on the surface it's played as, you know, she's bullied initially and she's not respected because of her appearance, but actually she's devastatingly smart but there's a sort of second order view of her that she's also really pretty. So, mm. so they play to that as well. And it, it kind of gets confused. So I think those are, for me, those are the flaws of Sorkin. So the, um, there's, I think there's one episode where Ainsley Hayes is installed in the steam pipe trunk distribution God, room. So, so this, and Joshua Molina starts singing Gilbert and Sullivan yeah, at her. Yeah. So, so that this, must be the, your worst moment. Yeah, ever. yeah. This is the nexus of everything I dislike <laughs> about Aaron Sorkin. The, the only other thing I think Aaron Sorkin's really good at setting up straw men. So he yeah. so he seeds um 
he's he seeds something and it happens i think in the first in the pilot episode actually you've got this um evangelical really conservative christian talk show um talks oh no a conservative christian pundit Mm. or a political lobbyist and she's so clearly set up to be dismantled by by bartlett at the end that when it does happen you kind of you kind of if if you embrace what he's saying (laughs) then it's fine but it it feels a little bit like like she's been set up for it um yeah but but i still think it's it's such a great punching the air moment when he enters at the end of the pilot on the line he enters the pilot on that i can forgive that but it's the it's the fifth sixth seventh time you see you see a character like that and you think yeah 42 minutes from now you're being handed your ass and you're walking out of the oval office with your head bowed yeah and it reaches a it probably reaches the, it's its greatest moment or it's its bottom or it's uh apotheosis nadir yeah. um with the um, so so in the second and third or the third and fourth seasons, Bartlett is running for office again, um, and they give him an opponent oh, who's yes. called Rob Ritchie. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and he's so we've we're in the in the real world we're we're not with Clinton anymore. We've passed we passed Clinton. He's left. Nine eleven has happened. We've now got George Bush in the White House. Um, and Rob Ritchie is dumber than George, <laughs> dumber than George Bush, um, and he's clearly he's clearly dumber than George Bush. And it's and at the time, it's the, he was the most unrealistic presidential candidate ever on screen, um, and clearly set up to be dismantled, <laughs> dismantled by by Bartlett. Now, now. I'd gladly have him. As a you, would, you would, you would look upon him as a, a political heavyweight. Now yeah. you'd be like, "Great, let's have this guy. He looks kind of yeah. sober and somber, and he's never grabbed anyone by the by the uh, anything." So, um, yeah, it's interesting because obviously that that kind of season three, four re-election is obviously a massive uh, shift and plot development in the show. But you can never remember the name of the guy he runs against because he's so. It's you know it's it's not there's no real jeopardy there the guy is such a sort of to use a twin peaks expression such a hulking boob that um you, yeah you you don't you don't get any sense that there's anything on the line other than a, a thumping democrat win the the one defense i think against that is that i don't think those that i don't think bartlett's first that campaign i don't think that's about whether Bartlett wins or not, I think it's about Bartlett. So it's an opportunity to to drill down into to Bartlett's psychology. Um, so there's a there's an episode called the Two Bartlets, um, which takes the campaign. It, it takes the opportunity of the campaign for for Bartlett to be kind of psychoanalyzed, and they they look at so, so the idea of the Two Bartlets is you've got Bartlett. Bartlett, the intellect, Bartlett, the academic, Bartlett, the Nobel laureate, because he wins a Nobel Peace Prize, which Trump will never do. Um, it did, no, he wins a Nobel Prize in economics, which Trump mm, absolutely right. will never do. Um, <laughs> and he's this academic and, you know, he's uh, he's got all these sort of, he speaks Latin. Um, but he 
masks that. He suppresses that because he wants to be popular, because he wants to be elected. So he comes across out in public as this kind of folksy character, the sort of person who would cycle into a or bicycle into a tree or who <laughs> does something shonky, which he does in the, in the pilot. And there's this, this episode. And also that whole election is about the conflict between, between Bartlett, the intellect and Bartlett, this kind of, this kind of superficial folksy character. And, and it's about how the intellectual can come out without and oppose Ritchie without coming across as being snobbish or being somehow, they set up a straw man, but I think he's supposed to be a straw man because that's actually gives him the challenge. That's the challenge for Bartlett isn't to be against a real, really smart candidate. The challenge for Bartlett is to be against a complete idiot. And somehow Bartlett has to take him apart without looking cruel or without looking like, like he's, He's just burning a straw man. He has to somehow respect the candidate and also get his point across. Um, and if you watch, there's a debate episode where Bartlett debates Ritchie, which is actually a great, great, great moment. Talks about Eskimo poetry. Um, <laughs> you have to watch it. Um, but in the end, the conclusion is Bartlett just lets, lets the intellect out um, and does dismantle Ritchie. And everybody applauds, and it's great. And Bartlett wins from that from that uh, debate. This is why you were talking at the beginning, Mark, about trying to trying to persuade people to watch The West Wing now. Mm -hmm. And I'm in two minds about watching The West Wing now. It's still a great series, but right now it's profoundly depressing. It's a profoundly depressing series because it presents American politics as American politics should be presented. An ideal, yeah. It's it's idealistic, but also. It it presents um, it it presents candidates who who say sensible things. It presents a debate where in the past in the debate, if somebody says something stupid, then that's kind of them them out. That's like it also you know, shows um, politicians on both sides of the political spectrum with some kind of um, moral compass. So one of the episodes yeah, yeah. I watched was um, when Leo has to go up and uh, testify regarding the fact that the president hadn't made it public knowledge that he had MS when he ran for president for the presidency. Yeah, and um, there is a moment where they are questioning him, and there's an opportunity for the Republicans to really go for him on a very personal level and the two main uh, people in the Republican camp decide to pull the plug on the questioning because they feel that would be the wrong thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And you can't really see that happening these days. No. I don't know. It's, everything's so polarised. Yeah. Oh, I, sorry, I just I was going to say, because that, that obviously we're talking about a show now that's 20 years ago and mm. I guess... 20 years ago when Aaron Sorkin is writing it, in his mind he is drawing on memories of how he interpreted politics when he was maybe uh, 20 himself, so going back 30, 40 years. So it's the politics of such a bygone age where it was yeah. balanced and nuanced and stuffed by people with you know convictions and political principles, whereas now it's become 
something rather less. Except, except, uh, I, except I don't think he was looking at how politics was when he was young, because when, when he was on young... A, not on a conscious level, but I think subconsciously. Yeah. The, yeah. But when he was young, it was Watergate and Nixon. I think who who looking, did the honourable thing and resigned. So. But I think he's looking at politics from the 19... So his, his vision of politics is more Frank Capra. So right. he's looking at politics from the 30s and 40s when when people communicated and people yeah. did listen. Right. Um, I think that's that's the charm of Sorkin is, and it's it's no it's no um, coincidence that the West Wing doesn't acknowledge for most of its run previous presidents. So they had a policy that they didn't mention any real world presidents after Eisenhower. Eisenhower is the is the last president they mention, mm. and then there's a the kind of gap. Towards the end, they start mentioning Kennedy. I think they talk about Cuba, but but certainly in those first two or three seasons, the 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 fictional universe of the West Wing stops at Eisenhower. Um, and if you think about it, that's that's when the kind of modern after Eisenhower is when the modern presidency begins, and also yeah. the cynical presidency begins. You have. Yeah. You have the Kennedy assassination, you have Watergate, you have Kennedy's affairs, uh, you have Clinton Clinton screwing Monica Lewinsky in the, the Oval Office, um, and then you have uh, ultimately George Bush um, choking on a pretzel. Uh, which is quite, <laughs> which isn't quite as evocative. I think one of the criticisms I've seen levelled at the show is that it's almost like a reimagining of the clinton era sort of whitewashing it to make the democrats seem whiter than white um and i, I think depending yes. on your own sort of political <laughs> leanings i've seen you know people who are more to the right who really love the show and people to the left who have sort of said it's a bit smug and it doesn't really represent their version of politics but it's um i think regardless it- I think for me, what I fell in love with was the characters, the interplay mm-hmm. between the characters, and you grow to love these characters. And uh, to me, it's down to the writing. It's It just flows, and it's just a really fun program to watch, even if you're not steeped in politics. It, I think that's what drew me into it. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, there's there's enough comedy in the pilot that if you if you just respond to funny dialogue then you know immediately this is the show for you. When they when they talk about the president riding his bike into a tree and Leo suggests they sort of couch it as the president came to a sudden arboreal stop or they're trying to persuade the president to let the military um, or the, the Navy go and round up these three uh, rafts of mi- migrants who are coming up the the sea. And it's like, well, if we if we say we're under attack, then we can use the military to go and rescue them with guns and, you know, blankets and they say what you think you think america's under attack from three rafts uh, I, i'm not saying i don't rate our chances there are some <laughs> beautiful little exchanges buried in there which do belong in a, a more ostensibly comedy show so yeah i think it's it's the characters and the dialogue the politics i think on the one hand yes there is that that not not specifically clinton era being rewritten but there is a kind of smug left wouldn't it be wonderful if if you know the the clever people were allowed to rule the world but it's balanced with over the the two terms of the bartlett administration 
there's nothing that great by way of legacy that they're able to achieve. And that's because of, you know, they, they, they show that they've got the white house, but they don't always have the, the house or the Senate and they, they don't always have a majority. They have uh, a lot of problems with, um, a great many areas. Um, so they're constantly, you know, they're, they're in the most important job of their lives in the most important office in the, in the planet. And they don't always get their way. And I think that's, that's I think that's right. Um, and I think it de- I think it definitely is a whitewash of I think it is a whitewash of the Clinton presidency. Um, the American the, the film The American President was described as so the the character was described as Clinton if Clinton was more like Michael Douglas. Um, <laughs> whereas in the in the West Wing, Bartlett is Clinton if Clinton actually hadn't existed at all. Um, but but I think Ian is right that certainly after 9-11, the, the, series, the series is really idealistic. But then after 9-11, I think there's a recognition that this idealism is at odds with the real world now. That, that something so massively traumatic have, has happened to America that idealism can only go so far. And you can see... You can see the Bartlett, well, the fictional Bartlett White House being tested um, for this. So you have uh, similar terrorist plots existing in in the Bartlett universe. You have um, the the plot to blow up the Golden Gate Bridge, and they actually mm-hmm. Bartlett actually assassinates um, uh, an, another country's leader um, because he's connected with this terror terrorist cell. Mm-hmm. So. Suddenly, before that Bartlett scandal was MS, which is the perfect the perfect presidential scandal. I mean, Trump has syphilis probably, but Bartlett gets <laughs> Bartlett gets MS, which is which is not his fault. He conceals it because he's mm. he wants to do this job. It's not Monica Lewinsky. It's not Watergate. But when he assassinates this this uh, world leader, suddenly his scandal becomes mm. becomes. Um, it shows the flaws of idealism. It shows it shows the reality of what presidents are forced to do, I think. Um, but but because of the charm of the writing and because of the humour, it still it still carries you along. I think it shows flaws, but you're still you're still connected. Would you say it was maybe a slight course correction where they are dragging the show more up, you know, sort of tangibly into the uh, a sort of real world? I think absolutely. I think. Um, do you think because of because of nine eleven because it was such a seismic event, there's no way they could really ignore that, and that's bound to influence particularly a show that's specifically about politics and the way that the country is governed. I, I can't imagine they could really because I'm sure didn't they actually do a, they, a they hastily did. written episode in response to nine eleven or not so directly, they, but they did. The, the, the challenge was season three had already started being produced. Um, so it was due to start in October 20, 2001. Um, so the course correction was was impossible at that stage. Aaron Sorkin, you know, writes close to the wire, but not that close to the wire. Um, but when 9-11 happened, the, the first thing was there had to be a, a quick response. Either the show had to be kept off the air or there had to be some sort of response. So Aaron Sorkin basically wrote a theatrical play uh, called Isaac and Ishmael, which is outside of the the story of the West Wing. It just sort of stands alone, and it's characters debating 
what a liberal response to terrorism would be. So at the same time, George Bush is giving a sort of a, a slightly more right wing, um, more aggressive response to terrorism, um, more jingoistic. Mm-hmm. Aaron Sorkin presents this television play where characters are starting to to say, well, not not all Islamic people are Al Qaeda. So uh, Al Qaeda is to Islam as the Ku Klux Klan is to Christianity. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the the Bradley Whitford um, lines. Um, Interestingly, Bartlett, the president, Martin Sheen, isn't in that episode. So they keep Bartlett um, quarantined from this situation um, and just allow his his minions. So he, uh, Leo, uh, the chief of staff and the communication director and blah, 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 um, allow, allow them to, to tackle different aspects. And it, it absolutely is the liberal, the liberal riposte. To what Bush is doing, it's it's saying that liberalism and idealism still work even in the post 9/11 world. Here's how, and now we can move into season three, which has already been half written mm-hmm. and partially produced. So there isn't that jarring moment. But then, as season three progresses, then you do get you do get um, more more sort of terroristy storylines coming in. <laughs> but it also it also changes at the same time season three's being shown twenty four as starts so that's when twenty four starts yeah. twenty four is absolutely <clears throat> twenty four is like a nineteen eighties um approach to international politics so in the nineteen eighties <laughs> when when reagan when Reagan was president, Reagan wasn't really an action figure he was sort of an aging cowboy yeah um but you see lots of films, things like Rambo, yeah. um, where, where sort of versions of Reagan and versions of Reaganism really pump their bodies up to sort of steroidal kind of proportions and go off and murder, murder foreigners, nasty foreigners in Vietnam or wherever or Afghanistan. Or just, and, down, just down the yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so these films are sort of reagan's power abroad and it's it's kind of reagan's proxies doing difficult things because reagan can't do it and that's what 24 is 24 is jack bauer going around torturing people it is a a seriously right-wing series yeah i mean i i I, i'll be honest i love 24 Um, oh yeah it's great it's great (laughs) but it is the torturing people yeah i love it um, the next podcast I want to be on is about 24. Um, imagine doing a podcast where each week you're reviewing an episode of 24. Well, in tonight's episode, Jack tortures a man and shoots another man. It would yes. be... It and would in, be the next, in the next episode, Kim, Kim Bauer is inexplicably threatened by a polecat in the forest. <laughs> just, just because they need a cliffhanger and it's it's... 20 episodes into this damn series and they've run they've run out of twists ideas and it's got another eight years after this <laughs> um so so moving on from series three because obviously at the end of series four we i say we lose uh aaron sorkin left the show and that i suppose is the kind of big pivot point for a lot of people and a, a lot of people um, kind of stopped watching it at the end of series four. Um, and I'm struggling to think what point I was about to make there. But How do you feel it stacks up compared to the work that Sorkin did? Do you think they are able to keep the 
um, spirit of the show or is something lost just through not having that kind of voice coming through? I, I'm going to talk all over Matt for a second because he's, go he's go going to say something very, very considered and profound. But if I can just <laughs> waffle for five minutes first, because I'm, I'm, just, gonna, I'm, I'm just going to break wind. Well, I, I won't I won't get my fee for this episode if I don't say <laughs> at least sort of seven minutes worth of content. Sorry. Um, I think it, it, it sort of it evolves into a very different show, whereas under Sorkin, it was much more of a a writer's show. It was much more about the dialogue and the, the musical nature of the dialogue. And, and, mm-hmm. uh, and it was very theatrical in the sense of you've got, you know, about three sets and, and it's just people walking around the building, talking to each other. Um, and then suddenly it became much more of a, a kind of widescreen, uh, multi-location political drama where, because they, obviously couldn't match the writing of Aaron Sorkin. They just, you know, allowed themselves to, after they spent about a year trying to emulate Sorkin and then they just thought, yeah, no, we'll do something different. And that's when it really, uh, much like series two of Twin Peaks, it really sort of came good again at the end and, and, and built back up to something really powerful and uh, all consuming. Yeah, I agree. Um, so, <laughs> hey. So um, Twin Peaks was that? Uh, no, tw- I don't. Hey, I don't mind the second series season of Twin Peaks. Um, I just don't think it's necessary to watch it to understand the return. I think the return is basically the sequel to the film uh, yeah, and yeah, the no, beginning of Twin Peaks and the end. That's my point. Anyway, you should stop talking about Twin yes. Peaks. Yes, we're here yeah. to so, West Wing. So as Ian says. Yeah, so Aaron Sorkin leaves, and for a time they do try to to do Sorkin, um, do a kind of a pastiche of Sorkin, and I think that's for me is that's the weak, the one weak spot of the show. And when I am watching it all the way through, I think that season five, so season five starts with quite an exciting twenty-four-ish plot where the president's daughter is kidnapped. Um, yeah, and the president that. has to stand down and he transfers power over to John Goodman, who actually actually comes across. He's a right wing president. Not John Goodman, the actor. He's John Goodman John is playing Goodman. a character. So he's playing Walton. That would be incredible if he took over the Republican the Speaker of the House. Um, although actually John Goodman would probably be very similar, I think. Yeah. Um, but this is this is like this is this is the version of Richie who could be president. So Walken is the person taking difficult choices, making difficult choices, being aggressive, and he's full of personality. Um, so that, that little, that little subplot doesn't feel very West wingy, mm. but it holds my attention. And then I think the middle of season five wanes. I think it's, it's with a few a few highlights, but it's it's basically sort of them trying to do what Aaron Sorkin did, but without that kind of inventiveness of Aaron Sorkin. Um, I watched an episode for this in preparation called The Supremes, which I think is possibly one of the, one of the highlights of that that season. Mm-hmm. I think with the absence of Sorkin, so behind Sorkin when he was writing, he had these sort of political professionals so people who had been in the business giving him advice and 
feeding him like plot lines that he could use and eat up. When Sorkin left, these political professionals, suddenly they came to the fore and they right. started actually writing stories and their ideas became became um, much more prominent. Okay. Um, so the episode, The Supremes, it's about the Supreme Court. Um, and very briefly, um, it's set up that there are two elderly members of the of the Supreme Court, the Chief Justice and another Justice. Um, one is left wing, one is pretty much right wing. Um, and they're both sort of, you know, one's, one's sort of got health problems, but refuses to retire because he doesn't think Bartlett will be able to replace him with a similarly, similarly left-wing candidate because he doesn't yes. think Bartlett has the power. As it happens, the right-wing justice dies. And then the Supremes is about the West Wing racing around trying to find a replacement for him. And they're looking at left-wing candidates but they can't have a left-wing candidate. They have to have a centrist centrist candidate. So they're looking for the candidate that offers the best compromise. And the the solution in that episode is they realise that if they can persuade the Chief Justice to retire, they replace the Chief Justice with Glenn Close, Glenn Close, who plays this real progressive left-wing left -wing, uh, lawyer. Mm -hmm. They can replace him with Glenn Close, and then they can just give the Republicans who they want, for the second place, yeah. and they get a balance of on the Supreme Court, and it's that I think that's a highlight of that particular season because it, that is saying something profound about about the Supreme Court and about compromise and about the balance of power in American politics. That again, you re with Kavanaugh now you so, really yeah, don't see anymore. <laughs> this is another episode which was really profoundly depressing. Yeah. yeah. What, um, Republicans and Democrats talking about, you know, who to choose. And it turned out, turns out that the right wing justice that they appoint is actually a really nice guy, nice guy. But he has these views, but he's also not uncritical about these views. He's also, you know, balanced, but yeah. on the surface, he's right wing, but he's balanced. Um, so there are highlights, but I think Ian is right that the series really takes flight again when they abandon not just Aaron Sorkin, but also, so Aaron Sorkin is the is the author authorly presence in the series, but Tommy Shlamy is the visual presence in the series. He's the guy that directs the pilot episode, and he's kind of involved as a creative producer and director throughout. And under him, the look of the series develops, the kind of the hot lights in the West Wing and the walk and talks. Yeah. Um, and the, the blocking of the scenes, they kind of move away from him as well as Sorkin. And as Ian says, there's a lot more location work. There's a lot more handheld camera. The The dialogue starts becoming more Robert Altman-y. So it starts to overlap and conflict. And mm -hmm. and instead of a, Sor a Sorkin scene is a, is a set of, so a typical Sorkin scene is a set of mini dramas within one scene where each character has their own story and they're kind of coming out bouncing between them, between each of them. So, so each character has its own, their own motivation and they're bringing a different story into this scene. Um, and it's played like this kind of clockwork piece of poetry. Um, but that's Sorkin, that's, that's the way Sorkin writes. And that's the unique way, almost the unique way that Sorkin writes without Sorkin, you need something else. And, this kind of 
overlapping dialogue and this fast paced this fast paced delivery um that's the perfect replacement i think and also that works as it gets into the the series gets into the last two seasons uh the storyline kind of kind of needs that energy and it needs that location work and it needs that style of of dialogue delivery as well so yeah so that's that's my view and the last two seasons i i think ian and i agree that for me i think i think from halfway through season six to the end i think is such a strong series of episodes they kind of blow they don't literally blow the white house up that's um <laughs> that's uh, that would be treason well that's that's more um was it designated survivor or whatever it's called <laughs> um they they tear apart the family of the the, the west wing mm. so they set characters in conflict with one another and then um bradley whitford's character josh he leaves the white house to start grooming and uh, or training up um what who he thinks is bartlett's replacement santos yeah um, Jimmy Smith and Jimmy Smith, and suddenly, halfway through season six, half the episodes don't take place in the White House. They take place on the road with Josh and Santos and the different campaigns, mm. and it becomes a kind of a road trip campaign drama. And for me, I'm watching it, and suddenly, for for seasons, I've been loving the White House. I've been loving this family, and I've really felt at home there. But halfway through season six, I suddenly realized that actually the White House set set episodes I like less than the ones out on the road. I suddenly so they've ditched the unit family and they've gone off into you into outer <laughs> into space. space. Yeah. yeah, and I and I prefer the outer space. Suddenly, I it's it's arc in space and not the time warrior. And I'm thinking, well, <laughs> I'm 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 on board for that. Yeah. Um, and it gets increasingly more like that as it as it builds towards ultimately uh, spoiler alert Santos's um, Santos's inauguration. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's such a rich it's a rich period of the show, and nobody was watching. <laughs> they moved as if they they'd have a person of color become the president of the United States. <sighs> I, I swear to God. So I um last time I mentioned my thesis. As I was writing the conclusion to my thesis, the last page, literally the last page, was the day that Obama got elected. Mm-hmm. And the last page of my thesis is me is me sort of very excitedly talking about how how safe the future of the presidency is and how Santos Santos has sort of paved the way. Because Santos, not just Santos, but fictional presidencies did pave the way. Mm-hmm. For Obama, this is for, this is part of what my argument was that that fictional presidencies actually help shape the perception of the real presidency in America, and it kind of softens the impact of certain of certain figures in American politics and it makes them more acceptable. And if you watch, there's a run of of fictional presidencies. If they're talking about the future, then quite often the the fictional presidency is. Um, a black actor, so you get Morgan Freeman had yeah. a, had a run of playing the American the American president or female at the at the same time as the West Wing. There was a series called Commander in Chief, um, where um, who who Jimmy Flip from? Um, oh yeah, the bad pirate. One of my favorites. Um, oh, what's her name? Gina Davis. She played oh, the president. Okay. 
so it's paving the way for a president that isn't um, uh, mm-hmm. a white guy in his 1970s, well, in, the, in his uh, 70s. I think um, the obvious elephant in the room here is is 24 again, because you had a run of black presidents yeah, and then a female yeah. president. So yeah, yeah. Um, if, a, if, a, if a right-wing show like that can do it, then absolutely <laughs> it's it's dragging it into the mainstream, isn't it? Yeah, so so in the mid in the mid two two thousands, that meant the future. That meant if you saw a black or female president or a gay president in the White House, that meant the future. Um, but then Obama was elected, and and it, it, Obama was elected. It was a moment, and we'd been prepared for it, basically. To to quote Tom Baker. <laughs> um, do you think that by sort of televising black presidents and um, female presidents, they were in some way making it acceptable that one day in about 15 years' time we could have a female doctor? <laughs> no, I, I wouldn't go that far. In, the problem is in this, in this country, we've, we'd already had a female prime minister. Um, and... <laughs> So the f- the future had already happened, and it wasn't all that great. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, but but also Obama was so sorry. Santos was based partially on Obama, right? So the, there there was actually a, a connection uh, between them. Um, but yeah, I love I love that la- the last season and a half, um, and the best the one of the best things about that was so Santos is a candidate. But they also bring in a Republican candidate called Vinick. Um, and some genius casts Alan Alder as, yeah. this, as this character, who's this, who in real life is this liberal kind of progressive. He's basically mm-hmm. Martin Sheen liberal. That's how liberal Alan Alder is. But you cast him as a Republican and the two dovetail so beautifully. And I, as I understand it, they don't know in the series. They don't know that the series is going to end after series season seven. They're still thinking this could go on to season eight. And for a portion of the time, they don't know if it's going to go on to season eight and Matt Santos is going to be president or Arnold Binnick is going to be president yeah. or Arnold Alder. So for a time in those, in those episodes in those, in those debate episodes in the debate episode and in, in the, uh, the, the, the election episodes for a time it's like the two actors are competing against each other to become the season the series <laughs> lead in the end um and i find that really exciting and that really exciting that they've managed to construct after having seen richie and walken seeing a republican presidential candidate being constructed as a as a figure of common sense as somebody that actually you could see you can see sensibly running the country. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he was quite centrist. It was a, a kind of a John McLean figure. Um, but even so, you know, um, you had two opposing political views, both of which could have made a West Wingy series out of. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really exciting. If you were both to sort of recommend episodes that were real standouts, I mean, it's quite an undertaking. It's seven series. Uh, how many episodes are we talking? I'm just going to crack my knuckles. Uh, what, about 140? We're into the hundreds, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
can you just dip in and out if you just want to get a little bit of a taste of what it's like or do you have do you have to watch them all you know from series one episode one right the way through would you pick i think i think it it works a lot like um like heroin i think you can (laughs) you can start with one or two whatever but i know you're going to watch all of it because i know what it's like i'm not saying i know what heroin's like I, i i don't know what heroin's like I very rarely take heroin. I normally take it before the Strangers in the Space podcast. Just right. To take, just, for, just to take the just, edge off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I sort of, well, I, can't, I kind of, it's a sort of a combination, there's a kind of a combination of heroin and crack that yeah. you can take that kind of gives you the buzz but also makes you calm underneath. And I find that's perfect for, for Strangers in Space because it gives me the buzz so I can deal with Lee um, when Lee's Lee's saying, Lee starts talking and you think he's either going to say something really profound or really stupid. And can I really listen to him? (laughs) And and have I got the patience to listen to him until I find out? Fully uninitiated. Strangers in Space is the podcast that you're a part of, Matt. Yes, yeah. It's a Doctor Who podcast with yourself, Simon Brett, Lee Rawlings and some chap called J.R. Southall. Yeah, for for whom? So dealing with J.R., obviously the heroin really helps because I need to stay calm because <laughs> obviously I disagree with a lot of stuff. And, and I find that I find that when I disagree with J.R., suddenly the most minor things become the most important things in but my life. Matt, but Matt, <laughs> but Matt, but <laughs> Matt. I, I can't, I can't. <laughs> The things we're talking about are the most ridiculously mundane, like slow level things. Like, no, it's one. No, JR, it's two. And I, I swear to God, at one point I pulled out an essay that I'd written for university and pointed at, pointed at it. And I, thinking about it makes me feel so depressed. <laughs> um, but heroin, as I say. Um, what was the question? Sorry. <laughs> I lost track. Oh, you were recommending? Uh, yeah, I was. I was just giving the listeners a chance to uh, get an idea of your what your podcast is like, and I think um, depending on that description, <laughs> they they might either really go for it or perhaps yeah, we're, a wide berth. We're, we don't we're definitely a Marmite podcast. <laughs> well, um, I've been I've been listening to the uh, the Blue Box, which became Strangers in Space, for about seven years now, and I love it. So yeah, you know. Feed that back to the team for punishment. No, don't you'll just you'll just uh, yeah, you'll just uh, incite them to be it. (laughs) I I assume only Australia listens to us, that makes it much easier. Surely they're too busy watching Death in Heaven on repeat. Oh, but the cyber, the cyber (laughs) ring, hey, David Kitchen, hey, the cyber ring is great, anyway. So the, back, the episodes, I, what I would say... the subject in hand, please. West Wing episodes, I'd say definitely watch the pilot because it oh, introduces yeah. the whole concept and the characters. Yeah. I, I, I You could picture. watch them out of order, but mm-hmm. I would wonder why you would want to. Yeah. Um, yeah. But highlights, I would say the pilot. I would say Celestial Navigation mm. is the funniest West Wing episode and it's my comfort West Wing episode. It's the one I can watch repeatedly. Is that the one um, where Alison Janney has to have dental surgery? Yeah, she has root canal, and, yeah, and, yeah. and her, her colleagues in the White House um, f- convince her to say yeah. "foggy bottom" <laughs> when she's still got her mouth numb. 
Um, and it's also the one where where Josh uh, comes up with a secret plan to fight inflation. Yeah. Um, oh, yes. Yeah, trouble with Bartlett. <laughs> and it's genuinely a, a comedy masterpiece. Aaron Sorkin is is a comedy writer. And that really is entertaining. That I watched is, it the other day. It's very good. It is very good. Um, so I definitely watched that. Um, I'd watched I'd watch um, the last episode of season one and the, the first two of season two, um, because that's um, spoiler alert Bartlett's assassination attempt um, and the aftermath of that. Um, and I say there's so many. What's two, the one two... with um, with, with, with Charlie and, and the carving knife? Oh, isn't that two cathedrals? No. Oh. It's. I think it's like a, a an early Christmas episode. But oh, that it must one... be, it's a must. No, it must be a Thanksgiving episode. Oh yeah, they're talking about Turkey and America. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. Americans are odd. They don't. Um, they don't do. Uh, they don't do Turkey at Christmas. They do it at Thanksgiving. I don't understand why you'd limit yourself to do, when you could have it twice in quite short succession. Why they only have it once? I suppose they're just more. To be honest, uh, Tur- Turkey lasts so long. You probably it could does, do. Doesn't it? They're having sandwiches all the way through till the new year. Yeah. <laughs> um, again, um, I would I would say season three. I'm just looking through the episodes. Season three, the two Bartlets, as I was talking about earlier. Yes, that's, um, that's really right. really smart dissection of Bartlets and Bartlett for America, which looks into yeah, that's a great episode. Looks into um, how Leo found Bartlett, mm-hmm. and as I was talking about, there was this there's this whole thing about the president as God, um, which is even more depressing nowadays, but. Mm. Um, <laughs> There's the idea that the president has a physical body and he has he has a godly body. He's been anointed by God and it comes from um, uh, English kings. There's a concept called the king's two bodies uh, because kings in England were supposed to be anointed. They're supposed to be God's representatives. So you have the physical side of the presidency or the king, the kingship and and also the presidency side, the, the office. And somehow the office is immortal. It's just briefly occupied by this. It's like actors and Doctor Who. One character, <laughs> yeah, the one character, one character yeah. consistently going through, unless they re, uh, <laughs> unless they uh, rejig with the mythology. Um, it's one one character all the way through, but different actors involved in it. Um, and and Bartlett for America kind of plays into that because you see Bartlett as being this kind of figure with apostles so when you ever whenever you see a flashback to how to how his staff find bartlett it's always like he's jesus and his staff are kind of like finding each other and converting them and they're on a road to they're on a road to damascus and they sort of bring other people in and bartlett from for america is a perfect perfect representation of that mm. um i'm looking at season four uh, the inauguration episodes. Season four is, is Bartlett's the inauguration for Bartlett's second term. Those are really charming episodes. Um, and then yeah, and then I would just watch everything from the middle of season six onwards. Yeah, basically. So I I think you're right. You need to start with the pilot, but yeah. you know at least you know that there are these little uh, gems scattered mm-hmm. throughout. Uh, so even if perhaps one episode you watched didn't really do it for you, you know that just by the buzz of most people that seem to really love it, they extol its virtues enough for you to know that you're going to get decent episodes more often than not. 
Yeah. Yeah, I think you'll fall in love with the pilot, and if you if you don't get on with it, then the show's probably not going to turn out to be for you so much yeah. because there's there is so much um, of what the show will become, and obviously will go on to do a lot better. But there is so much of it buried in the pilot that. Um, so we've watched it over the years, and we effectively watched it when it was going out. Do you think a, a new audience is going to be able to take to it the same way? Obviously, you pointed out the the whole how the, the Trump have changed. It's the Trump factor for, for me. It's yeah. the Trump yeah. factor that actually the the West Wing isn't idealistic anymore. It's slightly depressing. Mm. It's 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 like watching a, a Capra movie now um, because it's it's dated, but in a way that it shouldn't be dated in a way yeah. that it's, it's a representation of, of how the world or how the political world should be. Mm-hmm. Um, and during, during Bush, it was, it was fine during Obama. It was kind of unnecessary, but fun during <laughs> Trump. It's slightly depressing. It is slightly kind of like, I think it makes dark. you angry. I think yeah. rather than depressing. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah, that's you, true. yeah. Um, but as a piece of television, as a as a piece of storytelling, I think it's in in many ways timeless, and it and it should always be as um, consuming and addictive as it ever ever was. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you've succeeded. I'm going to go back. I'm going to start watching. I'll go back to season one and start with the pilot and work my way through. Fantastic. And and then watch Twin Peaks: The Return. Oh God! Yeah, which, I wouldn't. Which is, I, I which prioritize is, watching series two over The Return. I'm, gotta be honest. I'd call Twin Peaks: The Return the best movie of that year. It's literally a movie. It is a movie. Yeah, it's it's twenty two episodes long, but it's absolutely a movie. Anyway, while these two chat about Twin Peaks, <laughs> we're gonna go for a commercial break, and when we come back, we'll be getting a bit of listener feedback and also some recommendations from our guests. Bird's eye potato waffles are wobbly versatile. They go with beans, bangers, bacon, burgers, fish fingers, a fish fingers, eggs in, eggs on, gammon, steak chops, grill them, bake them, fry them, eat them. Bird's eye potato waffles are wobbly versatile. And welcome back. So it's time for a bit of feedback. Thank you once again for everyone who's uh, got in touch. Uh, we've had a few replies. I've uh, put the. Uh, feelers out on twitter and on facebook just to see what people thought of the west wing and we've had a response from the doctor who show on twitter so i'm guessing that's probably rob rob Irwin. it's been on the show a couple of times hey rob he says never bothered with it (laughs) so uh (laughs) thanks for that rob Uh, it's it's not as good so admit the west wing is great the west wing's a brilliant series Mm. but Compared to the cyber brig, I was going to say it's just like, not. Yeah. It's just not quite. It's, that, it's not that anyway. level of. It's not that level of emotional kind of like appropriateness. No. So okay, moving on, moving so on. Right. Quiet, Peter. Uh, Let's not move on. <laughs> staying in the antipodes, uh, we have yep. had a tweet from Forty Two to Doomsday, and I Ooh. think that's probably Mark, and he says. Uh, one of the best TV shows ever made, brilliantly written and well cast. One of those shows you never get sick of rewatching. Very true. Thank I second that. that. Yeah, I endorse I that message. 
Yeah, I, I've heard that. And we've had a tweet from uh, LHA underscore again, otherwise known as Lindsay, who's been a guest on the show quite a few times. Hi, Lindsay. She says, I absolutely love the West Wing. There is nothing so life-affirming as seeing people trying to do the right thing, even when they're not always successful. Also, uh, an incredible cast, the best use of popular music in a show possibly ever, and some of the best scripts ever written. Oh, interesting. Popular music. Mm. They do They do very occasionally like bring in sort of a Springsteen, a Springsteen track or something. Mm. It's going to be Dire Straits, isn't it? She's going to be referring yeah, dire to straits. Dire Straits and Two Cathedrals. Yes, yeah. That's, that's but because my, it's... my friend James, that's his high watermark for the whole series. She is Which a fan so... of the Dire Straits, I think, so uh, yeah, it could well be it. But it's mm. so rare that when it does happen, it has so much more of an impact. Mm. Um, there we go. And it's and so Andy loaded. Moore has chipped in saying exactly this on... Uh, oh, hang on, on, sorry, just just on that point, mm. I don't think she, what I don't think she's talking about is the stupid Gilbert and Sullivan. <laughs> when she says popular music, I assume she means actual popular music and not Gilbert and, uh, Gilbert and Sullivan. Or that's drop a, that's a line stupid. to the Strangers in Space podcast and get them to um, do a review of... There's a big finish with Colin Baker where it's a, oh spent, God, I've heard that. Like it's a, a spoof of Doctor uh, Gilbert and Sullivan. So yeah. we'll get you to, uh, yeah. to yeah. review it. The the other the other bit the other thing that I the Gilbert and Sullivan bit Gilbert and Sullivan like bit is actually in I think Posse Comitatus or something where they all go to a, a a stage play which is a musical version of all the Shakespeare Henry plays and okay. really sets my teeth on edge that that this again is framed as high culture that they've taken all these great Shakespeare plays. And <laughs> condense them, turn them into a musical. And Bartlett, who's this amazing cultured president, is going, "Oh, I love it! Oh, it's great!" No, he wouldn't love it. <laughs> He'd hate it. He absolutely Sorry. destroys anyway. it. Back to the feedback. So we're going over to Facebook now, and Mark Smith, who's from Forty Two to Doomsday, so he's been a bit cheeky here. He's actually getting two mentions in here. He's just put best program ever. So yeah, okay. I think we've established that. Uh, Chris Vanden Dreisen, uh, in response to him, says, totally the best. And then we've got Dwayne Bunny. It's very Australia-centric uh, feedback. Dwayne is also from Australia. He is the host of a new podcast, which we were bigging up on the last episode, called The Sirens of Audio, which is a Big Finish review podcast. Nice. Uh, so, Dwayne, thank you for writing in. He said... I watched episode one for the first time in the last month or so and then got distracted with Mandalorian, Lost in Space, Picard, <laughs> Doctor Who, The Man in the High Castle and Better Call Saul, among others. Hashtag not enough time to watch everything. So I'm sure he'll get back to that eventually. But uh, I think yeah, he suffers from the same thing as me. You've got that sort of magpie mind where you just can't really fix on one thing for too long. See, I don't see it as an excuse. I've because oh. I've I've watched all those all those um, series, <laughs> and I'm working my way through the thousand and one movies to watch before you die. And well, I'm not currently everyone is as great as you, seven hundred seven hundred. I've watched seven hundred movies, and I've got another two hundred to watch, ish. Um, but I don't have children, so <laughs> yeah, yes, this is that the might secret, have quite it? a lot to do with it. Yes, possibly. I'm pretty yeah. sure that it does. Yeah. yeah. My knowledge of Pokemon has uh, really come on leaps and bounds in the last month or so. Who's the little furry one with the pink nose? 
Oh. That's JR, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) I'm in so much trouble. Anyhow, thank you so much to everyone for providing your feedback. Daddy's going to whoop me so hard. (laughs) Oh, God. There's an image I don't really want in my mind. Uh, So, gentlemen, we've come to that part of the show where... I usually ask our guests for some recommendations for things that the listeners can check out. Um, so I'll come to Ian first. Have you got anything that you'd like to share? Um, it's uh, boringly, I suppose. It's going to be books again from me. That's not um, but at literally both ends of the scale. So there's a very short novella by Cho Namju called Kim Jeong, born 1982, which has just been published. It's the story of an ordinary every woman figure from South Korea. And it very gently um, explores the kind of endemic sexism of that society and the kind of futility of growing up female and and having any sort of grand aspirations at all in a mm. in a world where you're you're never going to amount to anything um it's a stunning book the other one i, I picked up yesterday is uh, the mirror and the light by hillary mantel so um oh, right. you'll be hearing from me again in about three years time <laughs> <laughs> it's quite large yes yeah. yeah but on the on the on the strength of chapter one it's every bit as sort of you know, jaw-droppingly spectacular as the first two books in the series. So um, I'm, I feel quite confident in saying it is also amazing. So for the uninitiated, that's the, the same author that did Wolf Hall, isn't it? And is it Bringing Up the Bodies? Bring Up the Bodies. Yeah. Mm, no, good stuff. Excellent. Thank you, Ian. Uh, Matt, have you got anything for us? Oh, I didn't know this was coming. Um, I'm going to go with films. Thought you might. Okay. Um, because they're at the forefront of my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one I'm going to go for, um, so I've watched Parasite recently, which you may have heard of, mm, yes. uh, which was the Oscar-winning Korean movie. Um, before I watched Parasite, a few days before I watched Parasite, I watched another Korean movie called Three Iron, um, okay. the number three iron. Um, and it's about, it's about a guy in Korea who 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 goes from who works out when people have gone on holiday and he lives in their house um not maliciously he repairs things in their house and make, keeps it tidy and then moves out before they get they get back so he's like a ghost that lives in people's houses and okay. as the film progresses he he gets another person uh, a, a girlfriend from an abusive relationship and she joins him in a house and he goes to prison and he learns how to literally be a ghost so well, not literally. He learns how to be a ghost, so people can't see him in the same room. So he's he's there, but they can't see him. He's disguised, or he's behind them. Um, very sort of parasite-y, um, but shorter and slightly punchier than Parasite. So that's three iron. Um, mm. the, se- the second one is completely non, completely irrelevant for today. A really old film. Um, I've discovered. Uh, the films of Ernst Lubitsch, um, who's this, I mean, he, he made silent movies and then he was making, he made a Garbo comedy called Ninochka in the 1930s. Um, but in the 1940s, he made a film called To Be or Not To Be, um, which is, it's a Jack Benny film and it's set in Poland just as it's been invaded by the Nazis. It's made during the war. 
So Poland's been invaded by Nazis. And uh, Benny plays this, um, the head of this group of, of uh, Jewish actors who have put on a play ridiculing the Nazis just before they invade. Um, and it's about them getting embroiled in a, in a plot with Nazi spies um, and the resistance movement in Poland. And it's genuinely, genuinely modern feeling and funny and quite respectful, um, despite, despite the kind of contentious setting. So uh, to be or not to be is my other recommendation. You're Excellent. welcome. And that was my, <laughs> Thank te- you that was my TED talk. <laughs> well, you're both trying to sound very highbrow with your choices. So um... <laughs> so you can choose scratching your bum and eating peanuts. Ah, oh, how did you know? Damn, damn, damn. Did you say no, I peanuts? Don't... I did say oh. peanuts. Yeah. Okay, okay, just check. Yes. Uh, my recommendation is going to be for a podcast. It's called Something Rhymes with Purple. And it's all about uh, the meanings and origins of words and uh, it's hosted by Susie Dent, who Ooh. is from um, Countdown on Channel 4. And her co-host is the former MP, Giles Brandreth, who um, I don't necessarily share his political leanings, but um, I do find their show really entertaining. Uh, it's about half an hour long, so it's not, you know, it doesn't drag on. And it's just quite amusing and it's just kind of comfort listening. So I really enjoy that at the moment. So I definitely recommend that to anyone out there who's looking for a new podcast. Excellent. Uh, so before we go, if you guys just want to give a little plug to anything you've got on the go, um, I understand that, Matt, you have uh, a book that's out at the moment. It's uh, worth a plugging, look. Keep plugging the damn You book. kept that quiet. <sighs> yeah. As even it's I having rave what... reviews, apparently, I've, I've been reading today. I... I... I plugged it on Strangers in Space when it started. Then mm. I carried on plugging it as a joke, a self-effacing joke, because I thought it was really funny. <laughs> but now, now I'm actually bored of my own. So I wrote, um, yes, I've written a book, Mark. Um, I wrote a Black Archive. So Black Archive is a series of, of, of books about individual Doctor Who stories that try to get under the skin, not of the stories themselves, but of things around the story so inspirations for the story or the culture around the story or sometimes the stories themselves yeah um so i wrote one on the demons because amongst amongst other things um witchcraft is one of one of, witchcraft was the second degree i did um uh, which is really great at impressing people and getting the girls when you say you've got a degree in witchcraft. well when you say you've been um, to hogwarts i mean that's bound to get them lined up it's also good at getting uh, uh, your pitch for a book through. Um, so that's the so yeah, it's the demons, and it's uh, you can find it on on Amazon by searching for my name, and it's got a really rubbish review on Amazon. That I did it, read that. I thought that was uh, somewhat dry and unspir- dry and uninspirational, or something like that. Mm. Um, it's got a good review on on Goodreads, um, but oh, that's well, from that's... that's from somebody um, uh, I know. Um, <laughs> So yeah, don't ignore the one star review on Amazon, <laughs> on Amazon which I'm <laughs> kind of proud of. I'm kind of proud of. I'm well, at least you got by. a response, you know. Yeah, yeah, nothing. I'm happy. Yeah. If, if I provoked a response, I suspect they haven't actually read the book. They're just commenting on the series itself, yeah, and I suspect yeah. they haven't read that much of the series either. But, mm. um, but yes, it's now it is still for sale, and I do right. get money from it. So, oh well, cha-ching. more reason. <laughs> 
And that's from Obverse Books, I think, isn't it? Yes, that's Obverse Books. Yeah. Um, and I'm also on the Strangers in Space podcast. Yes. Um, mostly do Doctor Who, but we're also, we branch yeah, out into films. Out, yeah. We do films. Um, I, d- I do my own sort of little international film um, sub-brand, mm. um, which uh, when we can get together. Um, and we do TV reviews and and things like that. So we we try to we try to do a bit more than Doctor Who now. Yeah, it's uh, it's opened up. It's, it's I like it. It's uh, a nice selection of different offshoots. Yeah, um, we're unshackled or yes, unbound. Well, yeah, let's again. That's another image I don't really want to um, dwell upon too much. I don't Ian. want to imagine them shackled. To be fair, <laughs> I don't think either way. I don't think that's a good mental image. Oh. Well, po- Ian, but pod- what are you flogging at the moment? Po- podcasting <laughs> naked is the only way to podcast. It's so free. Well, I, I remember, but with I think Five Minute Fiction is now into the fourth year of its slight production hiatus, so I'm not plugging that anymore. Um, I uh, am in the middle of writing a thing uh, which might be uh, published uh, in 2021. Um so for the time being, uh, Winter Hill is still available on Amazon from uh, searching by my name. Uh, you got it's some really uh, good reviews for your books, didn't you? Uh, thank you very much. Yeah, I did. Um, I, yeah, he said humbly. Um, <laughs> it's it's a, an episodic sci-fi kind of female-driven. Uh, there's monsters, there's aliens, there's politics, there's mafia, there's space travel. It's it was quite it was huge fun to do, and it took me five years so please help me monetize those five years by buying some of it so thank you both so much for coming on and uh, maybe you'd like to come back another time we'll chat about and something i else. was mad <laughs> oh, sorry. Sorry. and sorry. i would love to come back because it's thank been lovely you. chatting to you both always a pleasure never a chore <laughs> cheers If you want to get in touch you can email us at nerdologyuk at gmail.com or you can tweet us at nerdologyuk we're also on facebook just type in nerdology uk podcast and also now you can leave your audio feedback so there's a link in the show notes you can click on that or uh, if you're on the anchor website listening to the show there is a little button that says message and you just click on that and you can use your mobile phone or your computer and you can leave an audio message.